Well, good morning, church. It's uh, great to be with you. I was so thrilled to get the invitation from um, Pastor Stephen and Pastor Sarah to invite me to be with you this morning uh, via Zoom. And of course, I'm looking forward to the in-person service that will also be taking place. Uh, I'm Ryan Young. I've been pastoring in uh, Connecticut now for over 37 years. I uh, pastor Living Rock Church uh, in Killingworth. And uh, just delighted to be with you this morning and want to just share some things from my heart, kind of around the theme of how the Holy Spirit uh, transforms us and, how the, and maybe what God might be doing in our lives. And we've certainly all been living through a very uh, strange and difficult time, to say the least, uh, in this pandemic and, uh, and throughout the world. Uh, so let me ask you to open your Bible with me this morning to the Gospel of John, chapter 15. It's the parable that we know of as the vine and the branches, one I'm sure we've read and are very familiar with. But let me say at the very beginning that we should never think of the gospel writers as just being journalists, you know, just reporting facts. Um, the gospels themselves are, I believe, in fact, theological documents. Uh, so I don't think of Matthew, Mark, and Luke and John is just kind of telling me the story of Jesus and leaving all the theology to Paul. These guys themselves are quite the theologians and perhaps maybe even John the greatest. Um, and we do obviously get theology from, from Paul, but I don't, if we don't understand what the gospel writers are saying and how they're saying it and what they're trying to show us, then we actually could get Paul's theology kind of wrong. So before Jesus told this parable, of the vine, he speaks of the Holy Spirit's coming earlier in this chapter. And that is how we're gonna continue to relate to Jesus, uh, is by the Holy Spirit. It's how Jesus wanted his own disciples to know, this is how you're gonna continue to relate to me after I'm gone, the Holy Spirit is coming. And he also spoke of his desire, Jesus did now before his crucifixion, his desire, to complete the mission of his father. And here's how chapter 14 ends in verse 30. For I will not speak much more with you, for the ruler of this world is coming. But he has nothing, no hold on me. He has nothing in me. And then the next statement, I am the true vine, and my father is the vine dresser. So Jesus puts himself and his disciples in the, 14th in the 15th chapter, under the Heavenly Father's care and, and describes him as a vine dresser. Right after, he says, as the Father has commanded me, now I am sharing all these things with you. I do only that which the Father's commanded me. Now in chapter 15, placing himself and the disciples under that Father's care. Now, we know we're dealing with a great deal of metaphor here in the 15th chapter of, of John, a vine and branches. And we need to know that metaphors, you know, do have their limitations, um, but they're very instructive. And it's important that we don't make metaphors say what they're not saying, that we take it in the context of what it's intended, which is to help expand to us some information that we might not gather just, you know, on the surface. So what, why does Jesus introduce this parable at this time? I mean, what's, what's, what's happening that would cause Jesus to want to talk about uh, himself as the vine and his disciples as branches? Well, he's going to be crucified. 
The disciples' faith, he knows, is going to fail. Um, he knows that Judas is going to betray him. He knows that Peter is going to deny him. So what is this metaphor designed to show us? What is, what is the father doing as a vine dresser, walking around outside this union of the vine and the branches? Because that's exactly how Jesus pictures the father, as the vine dresser, and as the Jesus himself as the vine, and, and the branches, of course, being all of us, or his disciples. In just 24 hours, things are gonna be very radically different for these disciples. And Jesus understood what his mission was. But do we, as followers, did these fully understand what their mission was in the world? Because Jesus is not inviting us to settle down and just forget about the rest of the world. It's a summons, this being the, him being the vine and us being the branches, that's a summons to join him and serve the mission, to rescue the world from perishing. And the image of the vine instructs us about the nature of our mission. Neither that we're, we're gonna be fruiting branches or we're gonna be non-fruiting branches in this mission. And our bearing fruit is clearly knowing something about what the vine dresser does and what he doesn't do. Now, some people, when they read John chapter 15, particularly in verse two, they say, every branch of me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And they immediately take that verse two he takes away and they couple it with verse six. If anyone does not abide in me, he's thrown away as a branch that dries up and then they're gathered up and they're thrown into the fire. And some people jump all the way and make this a theology about, about hell, that if you're not bearing fruit, then you're going to hell. I wanna maybe give you something a little bit different this morning and, and, and what it has to do with the transforming power of the Holy Spirit. In fact, I would contend that this is never the first action of the Father, that judgment does come, but it's only after we've been unresponsive to his grace and his fatherly actions in our life to help us to be fruiting branches. I instead see verse six where Jesus says, if anyone does not abide in me, he's thrown away as a branch and dries up and they gathered and then put into the fire to be burned. I, I see that as a separate and distinct action because the branch is dead. In other words, it, it, there's no life in the branch. It's not attached to the vine, and therefore there's no life in it. There's nothing else that you can do with it. But this is never the, the Father's first response in our life. Now, let's just back up for one second and take a look at this vine imagery. As the blossoming Fig tree was, is a symbol of peace and prosperity to Israel. The vine was actually the supreme symbol of Israel as a nation. In Psalms 80 and verse eight, it says, you removed a vine out of Egypt. Speaking of Israel, you cleared ground for it in verse nine. But the vine was also the recognized symbol for the Messiah. In fact, when Jesus and his disciples left the upper room and began to journey, outside the city, across the Kidron Valley to the Garden of Gethsemane, they would have passed by the golden uh, vine that decorated the door of the temple. They would have noticed the vines that were clinging to the walls of the, of the city of Jerusalem. In fact, even coins uh, during this time uh, were minted with the vine symbol on them. But in the Old Testament, when you heard vine terminology, uh, it was usually in the negative. Israel as a vine, was not a fruitful vine. Uh, the prophets spoke of Israel 
as being such, unfruitful. In fact, Hosea, in chapter 10 and verse 1, probably more than any other prophet, describes the lack of fruit coming from this vine that is the nation of Israel, saying that Israel was a spreading vine. However, he brought fruit only to himself, for himself. In other words, Israel became more interested in her own self-preservation and became distracted from her missionary calling. Psalms 80 verse 16, again talking about the vine, says it's burned with fire. At your rebuke, your people perish. So Jesus, by picking up the vine terminology and describing that of himself, is turning this around and saying, I'm going to do what you were not able to do. I am the fruitful vine. My father is the vine dresser. And as branches, which his disciples are and we are, we are called to fruitfulness. Jesus is saying, I'm the true vine. I've got this, in other words. Uh, I'm, I'm rescuing this image of failure that you've had to live with, and I'm going to fulfill it. Jesus is making it possible that the fruit that up to now maybe had been impossible is now going to be possible, but only as you stay attached, only as you abide and stay in me. Because the very function of the vine is to bear fruit which in turn brings glory to God. In fact, Paul saw his ministry to the Gentiles, the, the gospel ministry that he was doing as an offering of worship, uh, as, as fruitfulness. In Romans 15 and verse 16, he says, to be a minister of Jesus Christ to the Gentiles, ministering as a priest of the gospel, this is my offering, he says, that's acceptable, sanctified by the Holy Spirit. So it's true that even by our own missionary involvement, and becoming fruit bearers and allowing God to do his work in us, transforming us by his spirit. That's how we show forth that we truly are authentic disciples. That's really what Paul is getting at. But are there secrets to vine dressing? Again, Jesus places the father outside of the vine branches relationship as the vine dresser. And it looks at first that if you, that you're gonna get either cut off or or get cut back. But in reality, transformation happens best when we're lifted up. And I believe that's exactly what Jesus is saying here. Because the motive of the vine dresser is to make the vine's branches more fruitful. And again, some interpret this quickly in verse two, that if you're not bearing fruit, coupling it with verse six, that it means you're quickly going to hell. And I don't believe that. I don't think of hell here as, as something that is the final, final place, although it could be, and it, and it, and it can be, and I certainly I believe in hell, and that there is a hell in the afterlife. But rather that if we're not bearing fruit, we're, we're discarded in a sense of usefulness, and our usefulness may be on hold. In fact, it's Dr. James Boyce and John Stott and many others who use the Greek to English lexicon in the New Testament say that the New Testament's Translators might have missed the true meaning of what was intended in the word used in verse two of take away. In other words, anyone does not bear fruit, I will take away. Because the Greek word, which is spelled A-I-R-O, has three basic meanings. One of them does mean to remove, but the other two mean to lift up with the view that you're gonna carry it, to lift up that which has been fallen down and carry it. And to me, that would make a lot more sense if the first time that the word is used in verse two 
Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he lifts up. Not that he takes away, but that he lifts up, that he carries it. That is to keep it from trailing on the ground. And that's exactly what vine dressers did in Israel 2,000 years ago. They would go through their vineyards and branches that had fallen down and fallen off the trellis, fallen off of whatever line they had put there for it to trail on, would first go through and pick up those, those branches that had, that had fallen, that were crawling along the ground. Because to crawl on the ground, that's where the bugs are. That's where the insects are. That's where disease is gonna be picked up. So it, it, it stands to reason to me that Jesus is thinking in context of what was practiced in vine dressing in his day, that those who maybe are not bearing fruit, let's lift them up first. Let's get them some more air. Let's put them in where the sunlight will get them better and where maybe they will have a chance to bear more fruit. Because after all, we're not pumpkins. We're not squash that grow along the ground. Our father's first instinct is always to lift us up. And then it says he prunes away the unproductive branches. That is, he's, he's cleansing the vine. That's a type of cleansing because if branches had become dry or become unfruitful, they could allow insects, moss, or parasites that would hinder the growth of the plant or actually bring disease. And so some of us are here today maybe watching this broadcast or in this church family and you're wondering, well, have I been cut off? You haven't been cut off. You've only needed to be lifted up. Perhaps someone will make an arbor for you. I wish as churches that we were better at this. It seems like sometimes when we don't feel like people are producing like they should, that our first instinct is to just replace or to cut off. And that's not the vine dresser's instinct with us. When we're not bearing fruit, his first instinct is to lift us up, put us in a better position where we can bear some more lasting fruit. This is why I think Paul says in the Thessalonians, in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 11, encourage one another, build each other up just as you've already been doing. This is what I pray for our churches today is that we would be so much better at lifting one another up. We're transformed, secondly, as the Father, the vine dresser lifts us up because that's our new position in Christ. Our new position in Christ is to be lifted up, attached to to the vine. In fact, eight out of 24 times in the Gospel of John, the same word is used and it's translated lifting up, not casting away or even taking away. Fallen vines in Palestine were regularly lifted up so that they could be healed. And that's not only better theology from where I standpoint, my opinion, but would be in agreement with what the psalmist says in Psalms 3 and verse 1. You, O Lord, are a shield for me, my glory and the lifter of my head. Remember the chorus we used to sing in church years ago? Love lifted me, love lifted me. When nothing else could help, love lifted me. This again, I wanna point out, is the first action of our Heavenly Father. It's not to condemn, it's not to judge, it's not to break off and cast away. He sees us trailing along the ground. His first instinct is to lift us up. In fact, that's exactly, it's important that Jesus is telling this parable to his disciples before they're going to the Garden of Gethsemane because later that night, Peter is going to deny the Lord. He is going to, from a distance, follow Jesus all the way to the court where he's interrogated and a woman, a young woman is gonna ask him, hey, aren't you one of his? And Jesus is going to deny that he ever even knew the man. And yet Jesus had said to these disciples before he even spoke this parable, you are already clean 
because of the word that I've spoken to you, because you believe my word in John chapter 15 and verse three. I don't think there could be any worse betrayal than what maybe Peter experienced the night that he betrayed Jesus when he was arrested. And yet three days later on a beach, Jesus takes Peter and restores him and asks him, do you love me? And Peter is able to respond three times, Lord, you know that I love you. And then Jesus reinstates him by giving him this commission, this vocation, then feed my lambs. In other words, Jesus is lifting up this branch that has fallen, this one that he had just identified. You are the branches. I am the vine. You abide in me. Jesus bringing Peter to a place where he could see that, that he truly is connected to him and restoring him to a place of worthy vocation to go back into ministry and do what God has called him to do. I also want you to know that transformation is relational, and I see that in this text as well. Jesus uses this phrase, abide in me, and he uses it 16 times. Six of those times right here in this parable. Too many people I know today have avoidance issues with God. Salvation is God's own rescue plan for us. In the past, we've been justified. In the present, he is saving us. In the future, we'll be glorified. But one of the tragedies I see in the church uh, over the years, over the centuries, particularly in the last, say, 500 years, since the Great Reformation, is that salvation is more than just satisfying whatever legal problems we may have had with God or forensics, restoring me positionally is not all that God wants to do in me because something's wrong with me internally. So this is where the relational part comes in. God joins us to himself by the Holy Spirit. He's the vine, we're the, we're the branches. So the very life that's in Christ can begin to work in me on the inside. You know what happened years ago? The church in the, in the West that spoke Latin thought that sin primarily was a legal problem that we needed a, a verdict of not guilty, that that's how we would understand salvation. The church in the East, which, which spoke Greek, thought the problem of sin be more of a, a sickness, not as a legal problem, and from that, we needed healing. And I think we need a blending of these both. It's a shame that we have a, the Western church and Eastern church, and, because really, we need a blending of these two beautiful ideas about the cross to help properly form us. I desperately need to be abiding in Christ daily that I can be transformed from the inside out and become more like Jesus. In the present, we're experiencing that kind of salvation. We're being delivered from the power of sin in our life here and now because sin distorts my soul. It damages my soul and my being. And, and sin sends me into a trajectory where I can continue to miss the goal. That's what that word sin means. You know, hamaratia, which is to, to miss the mark, to, to miss the goal, and sin will always keep me from hitting the mark. But God, by his cleansing work, God, by his saving work in me, by the Holy Spirit, is enabling me day by day, by abiding in him, to be transformed. That holiness, I believe, is a good word because it talks about, you know, wholeness in our being, that we're to become the person that God intended us to be, which is to be reformed in his image and his likeness. And yet at the time of Christ, it was the Pharisees that claimed to be the holy ones 
and always trying to prove their holiness by how zealous they were about pointing out other people's sins and ostracizing all kinds of people. And yet it's amazing to me that, you know, they would criticize Jesus for he eats with sinners. You really, you're, you're, you're criticizing Jesus because he's eating with, with people that you say are, are the wrong people? Well, the Pharisees, they preferred to, you know, deal with the sin of others than focusing on themselves. But Jesus, who is truly holy, focused his ministry primarily on those who were ostracized by the religious system in his day. Those are the ones he hung out with, which is why I think the first beatitude is, you know, blessed are the poor in spirit. In other words, blessed are those who feel you're not really good at spiritual things, that you really are impoverished when it comes to spirituality. Because certainly the way the Pharisees and Sadducees paraded themselves around, if you were just a common average person, you might think, how can I ever measure up to one of these guys? But Jesus comes along and says, hey, my gospel is for you. You're not excluded, you're included in the message of the kingdom of God. If we're united with Christ, I think we should be asking the same question. Who are today's, who is being ostracized today? Who are today's lepers that we will not touch? Who are those whom we will not engage with that we really should be engaging with? Well, Jesus over and over in this parable, not only talks about abiding, but he talks about staying attached. That he says it emphatically in verse four, no branch can bear fruit of itself. And that is really a warning that fruit bearing is God, not a human responsibility. No branch can bear fruit of itself. I have to allow Christ to work through me. I have to stay attached. I don't wanna attach myself only to a doctrinal statement. I don't wanna attach myself to only a, a certain brand that maybe that church represents. I don't wanna attach myself to just a charismatic a leader. I have to attach myself to Christ. And that's a pastor. I am called, we are called as pastors, to feed people, what? To feed them Christ. I mean, Jesus said himself in the Gospel of John chapter six, unless you eat my body and drink my blood, you can be not partaker of me. So what are we to be feeding Christ? What are we to be feeding the world? We gotta feed people Jesus. Teach them his ways, his way of being in the world. Which helps me realize that getting cut back, as Jesus then talks about, how the, how the vine dresser comes and cleanses by cutting back, by pruning, the action of pruning. Getting cut back does not mean you've done something wrong. In fact, the Bible tells us that we're gonna experience some cutbacks. You know, Jesus learned obedience through the things which he suffered. Experiencing suffering is part of our spiritual growth. And it seems the vine dresser is always gonna cut us baby back further than we'd like to go. We don't generally cut ourselves back. The vine dresser cuts us back. But that Greek word that's used there to cut back is the word where we get our English word cathartic from. Or katharizo is the Greek word, which means to cleanse, to make clean, to purify. So when the Father is cutting us back, when we're experiencing a cutback in our life or our ministry, the purpose is for fruitfulness because we can't bear fruit of ourselves. It's an impossibility. I wanna just say something briefly about how important fruitfulness is. You know, there's a passage in Revelation chapter three 
in verses 1 through 6. They're talking about the church of, uh, of Sardis. And the church of Sardis here in Revelation 3, it says, get there. Revelation 3, verse 1, the angel of the church of Sardis write, he who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars say this, I know your deeds. You have a name that you are alive, but you are dead. Wake up and strengthen the things that remain which were about to die. You have a reputation that you're alive, but in reality, you're dead. And I, and I wondered as I thought about fruitfulness, as I thought about the church, as I thought about my own ministry, as I thought about just all that we've been going through in this past year, how many of us have a reputation, we've been very careful to keep a reputation of being alive, but in reality, we're starved for a real relationship with his presence. We're starving for the Holy Ghost to just really pour into us and experience his, his power in our life. It's been a while since we just sat in his presence and just, and just cried as the Lord touched us and warmed our hearts over the things that grieves his heart, that are in our own lives, that we, we need a, a, a cutback that comes through having God deal with us. And maybe that's been some of the things that God has been doing in your life. And I know he's been doing it in my life over this past year, being cut off from people in, in many ways because of the pandemic and only just now coming back into more in-person encounters that, you know, God begins to help us encounter him again and be content with his presence and, and just sit quietly to receive from him. I don't ever want to lose that, that I've gained over this last year. But it's possible Jesus was saying something else here too as he talks about the churches or the, his disciples that about being cut off or being cut back because some are going to fall away. And Judas is one he knew would not abide in him. And I wonder if Jesus had that in mind. He appeared like a branch. You know, Judas appeared like one of the branches. He was at the, at, at the upper room. Uh, the other disciples, when Judas went out to do his deed, assumed he was on some errand, being sent by Christ. But instead, he was tempted and he was, led, he, he was taken away. Abide to me is a word about presence. And Judas had left the presence of Jesus that night. And just that, let that sink in for just a moment. How much we need to know how to cultivate in a regular, habitual way the presence of Christ in our personal lives, in our churches. And I don't think we should attempt to do anything as a church without his presence. In fact, Moses said this, Lord, I'm not even going. If, you don't, if your presence does not go with us in this whole wilderness, I am not going unless your presence goes. It doesn't matter what everyone else assumes about you. God knows whether or not you are abiding or not. It doesn't matter what other people assume. Oh, you've got a great reputation. You're one of this. It doesn't matter what people assume about you. God knows and you know whether or not you're truly abiding in his presence, abiding in him or not. And finally, transformation happens as branches 
For we're given power to love. Jesus speaks about that in John 15 and verse seven. Listen to what he says here. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish, it will be done for you. For my Father is glorified by this, that you bear much fruit and so prove to be my disciples. Just as the Father has loved me, I have also loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. Notice the promise, the range of the promise. Ask whatever you wish. This is the Lord of the harvest speaking. And when we're in love with him, when we abide in his love, we want the things that he wants. And Jesus wants a harvest. I do personally believe we're coming out of this pandemic into one of the greatest harvests that we're going to see, but it's gonna be very different. I really believe that it may not be something we see on a national scale, but that God is lighting little fires, fires all over the country in our little churches, that relationships are gonna happen. The abiding presence of God is gonna be realized and found and sought after in such a way that we're gonna see a great harvest because this is what he wants. And we need to be asking for that right now. But it seems as though the Lord has relinquished responsibility to us with this one condition. If you remain in me, you will ask what you will. When we remain in Christ, that is we resonate with what resonates with him. Do we resonate with God? Do we resonate with what he's doing right now? The purging that might be taking place, the cutback that might be happening, but that's gonna lead to a greater comeback for the gospel. You know, Paul tried speaking at one time, the world's language. When he went to Mars Hill, he, he spoke in his sermon and he was very careful to use language that the people there were familiar with. He came quoting their philosophers, but you know, it's interesting that Paul actually started no churches where Mars Hill was. But when he came to Corinth, he says, I come to you not in the wisdom of men. And to the Corinthians, he called the wisdom of the world foolishness. And it was in Corinth that Paul did establish a very, very great church. So it's important that I know we wanna be relevant in how we speak and represent the gospel, but it's important that we resonate with what Christ is saying and that we're careful about trying to resonate so much with what the world is also speaking. I also see something else here, that when we truly love as he loves, when we truly abide in the Lord's love, that we become a good friend to one another. You know, I, I so appreciate your pastors here. Sarah, I've known a long time, Pastor Sarah. Uh, in fact, I had the privilege of baptizing her when she was, she was just, a, just a young child. And I know about her deep love for the Lord as I followed her ministry as a missionary into marriage and now in, in pastoring. Uh, and Stephen, a wonderful young man that he's married. And I've had them both in my pulpit here in Killingworth to preach and to testify. But Christ says that we are to love as he has loved us. And I want you to know this morning that you've got some great gifts here in these pastors that love you and that know how to love the body that is Christ. True friendship, however, and with one another does cost us. It does cost us. It was the late Chuck Colson who was giving a speech to a large audience after serving his prison sentence. 
and the involvement with the Watergate scandal that some of you might remember in 1969. He was special counsel of President Nixon. His nickname was the Hatchet Man. And most of the nation, you gotta remember at that time, I can remember this well being in high school, that the uh, experienced a great deal of contempt for Mr. Nixon, former President Nixon. And in the midst of Colson's speech recounting these things, an angry protester shouted, why would you go to jail for a man like Richard Nixon? And he was hoping to incite some anger from the audience. Chuck Colson took him in and he looked down at the podium where he was speaking behind, silence fell in the crowd as they were waiting for his response. Then he raised his head and he looked in the eyes of that protester and he said, because Nixon was my friend. And at that moment, I guess his response stunned everybody. The crowd stood up and cheered. And I think the reason for that is because everybody realizes that we all want a friend like that. Someone that'll go the distance with us. Someone that will love us no matter what, whatever, whenever. When Jesus said to his disciples that we are to love, abide in his love as he abides in the Father's love and that we are to abide in that love, that's the kind of love he's talking about. A love that sticks in there, hangs in there, a love that's true friendship. And then finally this morning, look what he says in verse 16 of the 15th chapter of John. He says, you did not choose me, but I chose you to bear fruit that your fruit would remain. Finally, I think God is looking for fruit that is a vocational life. There's more to this gospel than just getting people to heaven. We have a vocational life as believers. That's a life of fruitfulness. And that involves bearing fruit in areas of justice, beauty, freedom, truth, power, spirituality, worship, relationships. We all know these things matter, but sin has made those things very difficult to express, and oftentimes we see more abuses of these things in the world. But the church, as the church, we are called to vocationally demonstrate that the kingdom of God in our life. As Paul summed up, the kingdom of God is not meat or drink, but it's righteousness, it's peace, and it's joy. This is what the Spirit is doing. This is the vine dresser's job. Lift us up. If we find ourselves trailing along the ground, he lifts us up cuts us back. We might experience some suffering, some discipline, but only to cleanse us so that as we regrow, we regrow correctly. We regrow right. We regrow into fruit bearing. To bring us into awareness of his love and to demonstrate that love and faithfulness to one another. That's what God has called us to. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, I thank you, Lord, for this privilege to speak this morning to this beautiful church family that, God, you have called to yourself. And we want to just confess out loud this morning, God, that you are our vine dresser as our Heavenly Father, and that you have called us to abide in your presence, the presence of Jesus, to abide in the Holy Ghost, to be filled with the Holy Spirit. So many times we find those words in Scripture, and Peter, filled with the Holy Ghost. God, you want us operating out of a very real presence and do those things that cultivate presence in our life, both with one another, 
and most importantly, with you. Help us, God, to exhibit the love that you have for us to one another and to the world around us as we cultivate, God, your kingdom in our midst. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.